And I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12 as we do continue on in the Word of God in the book of 1 Kings. I, I do warn you this is going to be a, a slightly longer sermon, but I won't be here this evening, so um, I'm going to try to get two sermons in in one. And, uh, I'm only sort of kidding. Anyway, um, obviously just to set this up, uh, for you, uh, if you haven't been here while we've been going through First Kings, we are starting the um, unhappy reign of Solomon's son Rehoboam. Now, wisdom had marked the beginning of the reign of his father, but unfortunately, as we'll see, folly marked the beginning of the reign of Rehoboam. Repeatedly, he makes wrong choices, but the Lord sustains him. This is something we need to see that because of the mercy of God and his covenant promises. He does not utterly destroy Rehoboam and his house. But as Matthew Henry put it so well, neither wisdom nor grace runs in the blood. And Rehoboam is an example, unfortunately, of that. But before we read God's word, let's ask for his blessing. God, our Father, as we come to your word once again, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and help us to marvel at how gracious your word is, how much it tells us about life. And we pray, Lord, that we would learn lessons from this. We pray, Lord, that we would learn lessons even from the mistakes of those saints in the past, those who have been members of your covenant community who have not followed you or who have done things that went directly against wisdom and your word. Let us learn from those mistakes instead of making them ourselves. And, oh, Lord, help me now to divide your word rightly. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. First Kings chapter 12. And I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem and to make him king. So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it. He was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt. That they sent and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us. And we will serve you. So he said to them, depart for three days, then come back to me. And the people departed. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, what advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us? Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, thus you should speak to the people who have spoken to you, saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me the third day. Then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. 
Now when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue. But all Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. Therefore King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Proverbs tells us that where there is no counsel, the people fail. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. It also tells us without counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. And we remember it was Solomon who wrote those words. He was a man who did not always follow wisdom, but he knew enough to look for wisdom in a multitude of voices, a multitude of wise counselors. Now, I have to confess that as a young man, I did not know the Bible, I was not a Christian, and I heeded no one's advice. The only counsel that I listened to was my own. And in fact, I was less likely to listen to you if you were older and wiser. Now, that's not to say that people did not actually try their hardest to counsel me. They would say, if you keep doing this bad thing, a bad result will occur again and again and again. But what I heard when they said those things was, wah, 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 wah. And I utterly rejected the counsel that I was given. So my entire early life, and I'm not kidding when I say this, my entire early life was one long series of learning by trial and error. If somebody said to me, do not put your hand on the burner, you'll burn yourself, the first thing I would do is to put my hand on the burner, just to check to make sure that they weren't lying to me. And then I would be, oh, that hurt. It's not a good way to go through life. I made a sorry mess of my school career, most of my time in university, and most of my early jobs. I know what it's like to be fired, let me tell you. It was actually only the grace of God that I was still around and not in, and in prison when I was saved at the age of 23, and I began to learn wisdom. I began to learn wisdom because the heart of wisdom, of course, is the fear of the Lord. And it wasn't until I was 23 and regenerated and I really knew the state of my soul that I became regenerate by God's grace. But until that time, I was my own counselor, and as the old proverb says, the man who represents himself in court has a fool for a client. And that was how I lived my early life. But having said that, I was slightly ahead of one other group. And that is the people who deliberately surround themselves with fools. To paraphrase, I, I worked in Washington, D.C. for a few years as a government contract, and I worked with several government agencies, and one man who worked for the government shared this with me. I, I paraphrased it and cleaned it up from his original version. He said, essentially, one person can make a mess of things. They can do foolish things. But to do spectacularly, catastrophically stupid things, you have to have a committee. You have to have a committee who have no idea what they are doing, but are absolutely convinced that they're experts in whatever the field is. And that explains a lot about government today, I find. Unhappily, as we shall see, that's also the approach that Rehoboam took to ruling. 
He surrounded himself with fools who thought that they were experts. Now, to, to get into the matter here, Rehoboam had already been enthroned. Uh, he had been confirmed as king in Jerusalem, but that would have been by the southern tribe of his father. That would have been Judah and, the, at that point, the, the tribe they lived alongside with, Benjamin. Increasingly, you're going to see Judah and Benjamin viewed almost as, as one tribe, the two southernmost tribes. There were, of course, though, ten other tribes in the north, the most important of which, at this point politically, is Ephraim the tribe from which Jeroboam hailed. Now, uh, the tribe uh, from which this political enemy of Solomon came was uh, not happy with the southern tribes, and neither were the others. As you will remember uh, from chapter 11, God himself had sent Ahijah to Jeroboam to anoint him as king of the northern kingdom, consisting of these ten northern tribes in the torn garment prophecy. God, we need to remember, had done this deliberately, and he had done it because of Solomon's apostasy, his worship in Jerusalem of false gods. Uh, Solomon had been given this amazing gift. He'd been given wisdom greater than any other leader on earth had. But what had happened? He'd allowed his desires to captivate his heart. He had allowed his desire for horses and money and a large army and, most importantly, women to run away with him. And then he had allowed his desire to please the many pagan wives that he had accumulated to overcome what he knew to be right. Even though God had warned him, it would result in nothing but disaster. Solomon sinned against knowledge. He sinned against his wisdom. And he did these evil things. And now God is bringing the curses that he promised would fall down upon them. God had ordained, and this is something we need to remember, God had ordained the split that is about to occur between the northern and the southern kingdoms. What God ordains always comes to pass. What he promises will happen always happens. When God says he is going to do something, he does it, whether it is to raise someone up or to cast them down. Many years after these events, you remember Daniel the prophet would tell King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon as much, standing in front of him. Daniel answered in Daniel 2.20 and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. This is the providence of God as it plays out in human history. Now, to discuss the providence of God a little more deeply, go ahead, if you will, and turn with me in your Trinity Psalter hymnals to page 923, or 922, I'm so sorry, 922. And there I would like you to take a look at chapter 5 of Providence. It's on the, uh, in the second column, and starting in the middle. This is how they describe the providence of God based on what the Bible teaches us. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. He is the one who upholds, who disposes. He not only created this universe, he's not the blind watchmaker. He did not let it simply tick away by itself, but rather he governs his creation. He's intimately involved within it. He is not removed, not absolutely transcendent. But the Westminster Divines go on to remind us of something very important. 
they tell us in the next paragraph, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. They're going to happen. They can't be changed. Yet by the same providence, he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So God's providence is not something done by brute force. He doesn't simply thrust everything into place himself. People are not moved against their own will, but rather he causes all things to work together to bring about his will. God is sovereign. We know this. The reason that you pray to him, and we pray expectantly, as, as uh, many uh, a wag has, has put it, uh, every man is a Calvinist on his knees when he's praying to God. He doesn't say, God, if you can, you ask him to do something because you know that he is sovereign and powerful and can actually do it if it's his will. The reason we pray to him and ask him for things is we know that he can do whatever he wills. But man is also responsible. And when God says, if you do this, good things will come from it, he means it. He really does. But it works with his sovereign will. God's sovereignty and human responsibility never nullify each other. It's not human responsibility overcomes God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty doesn't overcome human responsibility. They are both preached equally within the word of God. This is a doctrine we call concurrence. Let me give you a definition for that. This is R.C. Sproul writing. He says, concurrence refers to the coterminous actions of God. That is things happening at the same time in the same place. Actions of God and human beings. We are creatures with a will of our own. We make things happen. Yet the causal power we exert is secondary. God's sovereign providence stands over and above our actions. He works out his will through the actions of human wills without violating the freedom of those human wills. The clearest example of concurrence that we find in scripture is in the case of Joseph and his brothers. Though Joseph's brothers incurred true guilt through their treachery against him, the providence of God was working even through their sin. Joseph said to his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. How does that apply to these verses? Well, it applies obviously. In these verses, we see God using secondary means, such as the jealousy between the northern and the southern tribes, the oppressiveness of Solomon's taxation, the labor requirements, the heavy labor requirements they placed on their shoulders, the political ambitions of Jeroboam, and the boneheaded stupidity of Rehoboam and his advisors to tear the kingdom apart, just as he promised he would. All of these things came into play. So Rehoboam travels to Shechem, in the hopes that he will be accepted as the king of the northern tribes. They've come together to crown him. He wanted to reign over them just as David and Solomon had reigned over them and continue to have that united kingdom. But Jeroboam has already gotten there ahead of him. And what has Jeroboam done? He stirred up the northern tribes, stirred them up to demand the restoration of a degree of autonomy. They have a list of demands they are now going to present to Rehoboam. Now Shechem, where they were meeting, was a very, very important city, a city of huge historical significance to Israel. It was like Philadelphia is to America. It was associated with the founders of the nation. It was the first city that Abraham visited in the Promised Land, the place where Joseph's bones were buried, where Joshua renewed God's covenant with Israel, and where Abimelech in the book of Judges was crowned as king. So it had tremendous historical significance, particularly for the people who had brought forth this nation. 
But Jeroboam has already stirred them up. Uh, he said to them, you know how ridiculous the taxes are, how oppressive they are, how they take our daughters and, their son, and our sons and whenever they want us to labor or to become soldiers or even wives to the king, they just go ahead and take, take, take whatever they want. And we have no say in it. And who benefits from it? Is it us? Does the northern kingdom benefit? Do we have great temples, mighty palaces, giant cities in the middle of the country? No. No, it's all in the south. It's the southerners who are the problem. And we need to break away from them. So the elders put forward their demands. They, they're not quite, I'm sure, as, uh, shall we say, as acerbic as Jeroboam was in describing things. Uh, they actually, you know, they, they word things very carefully. They say, lighten the burden, reduce the taxes, reduce the forced labor demands, stop drawing so heavily on us, and we will serve you. We will remain loyal to you. In some ways, this reminds me of the olive branch petition that was sent by the American colonies in 1774 to King George after they had had what they called the coercive acts levied against them by Parliament. They simply sent them a paper saying, these are the things Parliament's doing. Please give us some relief. It's almost like you're waging war on your own people at this point. Unfortunately, it didn't have the desired effect. Uh, Rehoboam also is not happy with this list of demands. He obviously sees it as an act of rebellion. He sees it as an imposition. And I'm sure as soon as it was placed before him, his heart burned in indignation. And he thought to himself, how dare you place this paper before me? How dare you tell me you want these things? So he controls himself and he tells them to come back in three days. He's going to get advice. Now... One thing about advice, wise men and foolish men both ask for advice, all right? That's just the way it works. But wise men and foolish men ask for advice very differently. When a wise man asks for advice, what does he do? The wise man listens to the people who are giving him his advice. First, he goes to people who are accounted as wise, and he listens to their advice whether or not he initially agrees with them. He listens to their argument. And then the really wise man weighs the testimony of what they've said against the eternal standard. What is the eternal standard? Scripture. Is his advice in keeping with God's word? And if it is, I should do it. That's the conclusion he comes to. A fool, however... When he asks for advice, he goes looking for people who will reinforce the conclusions he's already come to. He wants people to give him an extra point or two to support what he's saying, to come alongside and give him greater confidence in what he already believes is the truth. It's not really advice. It's more confirmation bias that he's looking for from people around him. Now... We see here Rehoboam has two groups of advisors. He has the old advisors of his father, King Solomon, who were genuinely elders. And they would have been elders both in terms of age. These men would have been older than him and also in that Presbyterian sense. These were probably men drawn from all of the tribes who were in the forefront and who were known for their decision-making ability. They had helped Solomon, after all, to build the most successful kingdom in the entire ancient Near East, by God's grace. These were men who had the gift of wisdom in one degree or another. They're contrasted, however, with another group, 
this by description, they are called the young men who had grown up with him. Now, it's important to remember this. 1 Kings 14 makes it obvious that Rehoboam was not what we would call a young man at this time. 1 Kings 14 tells us he was about 40, about to turn 41 at this point. But the point is that this group who he's listening to were made up of peers, the other young princes and aristocrats and hangers-on, who were part of his, his, his posse, his circle, his, his group of courtiers. And they had the same opinions he does. That's why he accumulated them around himself. And they tell him not what he needs to hear, and do this for yourself. Surround yourself with people who tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. He has assembled his own social media echo chamber around him. They're carefully manicured and, and so on. Physically, he's middle-aged, Rehoboam is, but like so many princes who have waited too long to come to the throne and have been in the court and around it and so on, he has cultured the wrong kind of friends, the wrong kind of attitudes, and he has very much the aristocratic, holier, better-than-thou, divine right view of things. His friends are infantile, his friends are stupid, his friends are overprivileged, and his friends are coarse as well. Solomon's wise men, they give wise advice. They say to him, look, diffuse this potential rebellion. You can knock the, the, the ground out from under Jeroboam in a heartbeat simply by accepting a compromise, simply by lightening the load. And they're telling him, you're politically weaker than you think, lad. You really are. You aren't in a position to rule these people by force. First, they're the majority. You're in the minority. You are going to need, if you're going to rule them, you are going to need to make them love and respect you. It's not merely the fact that you have a crown on your head that is going to allow you to rule over these people. So they say to him, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants for how long? Forever. You will be established, you and your throne. Now, what does Rehoboam hear? Wrong answer. Not what I was looking for at all. That sounds like making the slaves the master to me. So like so many bad officers in history who have had no clue how to be a servant leader of men, and he honestly does not care about these people. They are assets to be used, not, not people to be served. Their job is to serve him. So he rejects their advice. So he goes to the dandies he surrounded himself with, and they tell him, yes, how dare they? Who do they think they are? Peasants? Come on. Now you tell them, my father made you forced labor. I'm going to make you slaves. And they even include this, this coarse Hebrew idiom, my, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. The word finger is not there. It's not in the original. It's... it's, uh, it's it's coarse. He whipped you with leather whips. I'll set overseers over you who whip you with scorpions. What were scorpions? They were scourges that had metal hooks in the end to tear the flesh as they reached your skin. I'll teach you who's the master. They tell him, play the bully, make them cower. And at this point, it is so easy. What has he done? He's delivered the people into the hands of Jeroboam because all Jeroboam has to do at this point is play Moses to Rehoboam's Pharaoh. 
I will be your deliverer, or reverse deliverance in this case. What good does staying in this kingdom do you? At this point, uh, the northern tribes make their declaration of independence. They dissolve the political union between the southern and the northern tribes, and it will never again be reestablished. It's done. We go through uh, the kings looking at the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Sometimes confusing because you're looking at two different countries at this point in time, but that's the way of it. One observation, though, and it's a sad, sad observation. Their secession from the political union comes solely because of economics. What do they object to? They object to Solomon's taxes and they object to Solomon's forced labor. What they don't object to, but what they should have objected to more than anything else was Solomon's idolatry. They should have been saying to him, your father built temples to pagan gods on Mount Zion. He sacrificed infants up there and practiced abominable rites. He brought perverted people into the land. You want us to serve you? You tear them down. You get rid of false worship in our midst, and then we will embrace you as the true covenant head of our nation. They don't even mention it. It doesn't come up. In any event, Rehoboam still tries to act as though the the old kingdom was still in place, and he sends one of his forced labor and tax collectors to the northern tribes. Just, you know, go on as we always have been. And they stone him to death. Now, Rehoboam had obviously accompanied him without an army, you know, just with his royal retinue. And he barely escapes with his life. Jumps in the chariot and he drives away. Now, why does he get away? I'm sure, actually, they could have probably stoned Rehoboam to death at the same time. Or there had to be somebody in the northern tribes who was there that day with a bow. And I'm sure Jeroboam would have just loved it if Rehoboam had not survived the encounter. Why does he get away? Because God had promised that just as the kingdom would be torn in two, he had also promised that the lamp would not depart from David's house. He had made a covenant promise. He promised that the line would not be interrupted. You remember dying Jacob back, way back in Genesis. We went through Genesis a while back. In Genesis 49, <laughs> in verse 10, he had prophesied, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh, a word meaning peace, is a reference to the Prince of Peace. That's why the word Shiloh there in your Bibles is, is capitalized. It's a reference to, it's not just a name, but it's a reference to Jesus. And to him, there shall be the obedience of the people. So there would still be a ruler in Shiloh until Shiloh comes in Judah. And God intended to keep that covenant promise. So Rehoboam receives mercy on that particular day. He doesn't die for the sake of Jesus. But we'll talk more about mercy for the sake of Jesus in a, in a few moments. I, I want to make a few applications. Then they go from least to most important. Although, I've got to admit, they're pretty important in this current age. Uh, the first is this. We, sadly, brothers and sisters, friends, we live in uh, a nation and a time that uses Rehoboam's methodology. We listen only to the peers who agree with us. We create echo chambers And we seek to bully those who disagree with us into submission. We don't, I mean, it used to be, I can remember as far back as 2014, you could actually have a reasoned debate, even on the internet, about political issues, about religious issues. Now, any comment you make is just immediately piled on. 
and it's their side versus your side in this awful sumo mud wrestling match with no, it's all, it's all heat, no light, and it, it's really awful. We immediately also, as a people, we disregard the advice of our elders. Tradition, we say, is bunk. Religion is bunk. Everything we didn't come up with ourselves in the present age is bunk, and we have to do exactly the opposite of what our elders told us to do. We have to reverse absolutely everything. And we have to tear down every institution, every tradition they gave us, or we're absolutely certain we won't be happy. Now, the fact that as we tear down more and more of the institutions, we become increasingly unhappy, and society becomes increasingly disunited and chaotic, well, that's because there's still a few institutions left for us to tear down. Once they're all gone, we'll be absolutely happy. In this, we are supremely foolish. But who are we listening to? We're listening to ourselves. We're in the echo chamber. G.K. Chesterton wisely said, don't ever take a fence down until you know the reason it was put up. But unfortunately, we live in a time when nobody remembers why the fences were there. They just take them down. I want to, to give you, uh, I think, what was one of the best summaries and this is, uh, th- this was actually from two atheists, Will and his wife, Ariel Durant, who wrote uh, this, um, what was it, 11 volumes, I think, uh, The Lessons of History. They wrote this, and please take this, listen uh, to this. It's wise, even though it comes from uh, people who were, in one sense, unwise regarding salvation. They wrote this, no one man, however brilliant or well-informed, can come in one lifetime to such fullness of understanding as to safely judge and dismiss the customs or institutions of a society, for these are the wisdom of generations after centuries of experiment in the laboratory of history. A youth boiling with hormones will wonder why he should not give full freedom to his sexual desires, and if he is unchecked by custom, morals, or laws, he may ruin his life before he matures sufficiently to understand that sex is a river of fire that must be banked and cooled by a hundred restraints if it is not to consume in chaos both the individual and the group. We are being consumed by that river of fire. Why? Because we cast down every levee, every bank, and it is flooding through the nation and utterly submerging it. We are literally drowning in our own desires. And we don't even have wisdom. Or we won't listen to wisdom to stop. Listen to the advice of wise people. I'm particularly speaking to those of you who are younger. Listen to those who are older than you. When you're looking for advice, listen to people who know the scripture. And never take advice for people from people who have failed at everything that you hope to do. Listen instead to the people who have succeeded and who are applying the wisdom that only God can bring in their lives. Secondly, if you are called, and so many of us are in one area or another, if you're called to, to, to lead in, in, in the family as a husband or a parent or a teacher or an elder or an officer or a boss or a principal or so on, when you lead... Do not lead by bullying and blustering and screaming. Do not think that you will get people to follow you, love you, and respect you if you sound like the worst drill sergeant every single day. Follow the example, not of Rehoboam, but of Christ, 
who is the greatest servant leader who has ever existed. He gave us this beautiful example, did he not, in the fact that he who is higher than the angels, the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, that he stooped so low as to be born a servant in a nation of servants oppressed by foreign oppressors. And yet... He was willing to continue to serve that people whom he was amongst. And then he set examples for his, his disciples. You remember the apostles were constantly arguing over this issue. Of who will be first in your kingdom? Who will be your, your vice regent? Who, <coughs> who will be your chief advisor? As though Christ needs an advisor. Um, and constantly arguing this way. So at the Last Supper... When he could have been thinking about all the awful things that were about to happen to him. As he went to the cross as our sin bearer. What does he do? At the end of the meal, he takes off his clothes, wraps a towel around himself. And then kneels down and does the work of the lowest slave. Washing the filthy feet of his apostles. The most wretched slave in a household would do this. Peter's appalled. Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus, of course, says to Peter, you know, Peter, if I don't wash you. You won't be clean. But what does he do it for? He says, you call me teacher and Lord. Well, I'll go back a little. So when he had washed their feet, this is John 13, taken his garments and sat down again. He said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You say, well, for so I am. If I then your teacher, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the, he who is sent greater than the one who sent him. He's their master. He's their rabbi. In Jewish society, this would never have happened. Jesus set the example saying, you as Christians, serve one another. You as Christians, serve one another. If you would be a leader, you must serve. If you wish to have an office in the church, you have to be willing to be poured out in service upon the people if you want to be a good leader who follows after Christ's example. It's not easy, but it is good, and it's what you need to do. Third and final uh, thing to put before you. Rehoboam is saved because God, he keeps his covenant promises. He always has. And God is in the business of saving vainglorious fools like, like the one who's talking to you today. But I want to give you a better example. Peter. You remember what happened after Jesus had given him all of these examples, the Lord's Supper and so on. Uh, Peter himself had told them, uh, told the Lord rather, that he would never ever depart from him. Although all men run away from you, and I I never will. And what did Jesus say to him? Jesus said, before the rooster crows three times this very night, you will betray me. Peter did not believe in it, but that is indeed what happened. Peter betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. He trusted in himself. He kept his own counsel. He didn't listen to the wisest counsel that could ever be given. If you don't listen to the Son of God and what he tells you, that's on your own head. You have just made whatever in whatever area the worst decision you could make. Countless Christians, though, follow Peter's example. We know what's right. We know what Christ tells us. And what do we do? We say to ourselves, okay, Jesus said it's wrong and it won't work and it'll have bad results. But I've got to check. 
okay. <laughs> and we do it again and again and again throughout our lives. Like Solomon, we sin against knowledge. We sin against wisdom. Peter continued on thinking, no, I can do this. But what does Jesus say to him? He says that the reason that he will not fall away entirely is this. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Peter's still not listening. He responds, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus tells him, no, you're going to betray me. And he does. Jesus, when he tells you something's going to happen, it happens. But what does Jesus do? He meets Peter and he lovingly restores him. There's foolishness bound up in the heart of every man and every woman and every child. You will sin. You will say stupid, vain things. But the Lord loves to restore the fool, the angry person, the the blusterer, the man who keeps his own counsel. He loves to show him the better way, to bring him to an end of himself, and then to restore him graciously and lovingly. This has happened in my own life. It happened when I was saved. And it has happened when I have made monumental mistakes in family and in ministry. God has been gracious to me in that respect more times than I can count. Not because I'm good, but because He is good. And He loves His children. And He who has begun a good work in you will never stop. Remember that. He will never remove the lamp that He's placed in your heart once He begins that work. So go to Him. When you sin, when you go against his counsel, go repentingly and say, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Ask for his forgiveness and it will be freely given. But remember, in future, listen to what Christ tells you. You remember what he said to the woman who was called in adultery. She confessed that he was Lord and he said to her, neither do I condemn you. But then he said something very important, didn't he? The world forgets this. Go and sin no more. Take that advice, brothers and sisters. Christ means it for your good. Let's go before him now. God our Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to not keep counsel with ourselves and not to be so foolish as to surround ourselves with people who are equally clueless about subjects and then ask for their advice. I pray, Lord, instead we would seek out wisdom even when it comes from sources that we know we initially disagree with. If they are wise, if they apply your word, let us have ears to hear. Moreover, when we do sin, when we foolishly go against what your word tells us, thinking it will be good, recover us, Lord. Restore us. Bring us back. Help us, O Lord, to repent of our foolishness and to instead follow your example. Help us every day to take up our cross and follow you knowing that you will never lead us astray. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.